Ephesians 6, verse 10 through verse 20, about spiritual warfare, the armor of God. Brittany is going to read for us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Thanks, Father. It seems that whenever we talk about spiritual warfare, sometimes we go through hardships and discouragement. We pray that you would give us an alertness and teach us how to stand so that when the enemy comes against us, and as he does, that we would not be knocked down that we would not give up, that we would not fall, that that we would stand firm, that we would withstand and be strong in the power of your might. So, Father, for your name's sake and for your glory, strengthen your church and give to us your complete armor that we may be on guard for you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So this is one of those sections in scripture where I have to begin up front by saying, frankly, I don't have a lot of answers. What the heck is spiritual warfare? What does it look like in life? How does it affect me? How involved are angels against demons? How real is this unseen realm and battle behind us? Do we play a role in this? Are we the battlefield? Are we just victims? Are we victors? I don't, there's a hundred questions you can ask me about this. I started when I sat down to study, writing down questions, and I stopped at about six and realized this is just stupid. I'm never going to find the answer to these. I don't think that Paul intends to let us know the answer to some of these questions. So, boom, I'm not going to speculate a whole lot on the armor of God and spiritual warfare. I think I want to approach this with what we do know and with what is practical for us, tree of life here in 2013. Um, So entering this, I think I need to quote C.S. Lewis, a pretty good authority, on how we should look at something like this. As you guys might know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and that is a fictional book about demons who are writing to one another about 
how to do their job of spiritual warfare and mess people up. And in the preface, C.S. Lewis introduces the book by telling us how you should approach something like the devil and spiritual warfare. There needs to be a balance, because usually we go to one of two extremes. And these are the extremes he says. He says in his preface, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. That's one extreme. Disbelieve in the devil. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in demons. So these two extremes is, oh yeah, spiritual warfare, that stuff's stupid. Like, you know, none of that stuff really happens. The other side is, ooh, oh, this is really fascinating. And this could lead in the long run down into a dangerous road. Um, so, on one hand, you have people who think of the devil in a red suit, red tights, red tail, horns, pitchfork, and they say, this stuff's not real. On the other hand, you have people who see the devil everywhere. <laughs> and I don't mean in each other. <laughs> but, you know, traffic. Oh! Spiritual warfare. I can't find my keys. Spiritual warfare. The sound system isn't working. Spiritual warfare. I'm not, I don't know. Is some of that spiritual warfare? I don't know. But you just have those people that see, like, your error of misplacing your keys is the devil's fault. So there's there's just extremes. And somewhere in the middle is maybe proper. So um, this is where I just say spiritual warfare let's just go with what Paul says and this is what we know you're in a battle and you're not fighting you're standing that's a, that's a specific point that we'll make clear as we go so you're in a battle but you're not fighting a battle okay, you're in the fight but you're not doing the fight and verses 10 and 11 are the clearest I think that you understand this part and once it goes on from there you're like whoa help so i'll make 10 and 11 clear right now and then we'll from there work towards the rest of our text okay so verses 10 and 11 say this finally bless you finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might period put on the whole armor of god so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's very clear. Verse 10 tells you what you're to do. Be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. Woo! Verse 11 immediately tells you how to do that. How do I be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? It says, put on the armor of God. That's how I'm strong is because his armor is on me that I can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, why? Why do I need to be strong? Why do I need his armor? Why can't I just be the way I've always been? Because, verse 11 goes on to say, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That means the devil has these schemes, these tricks, these deceptions, these strategies that are working against us and we need to be able to stand against them. So they're coming against to make us fall 
and we need to stand. So you need to be strong. That's what we need to do. How? Put on the armor. Why? Because someone's trying to trip you up all the time. So that's the basic nutshell right there. Spiritual warfare in a nutshell. Be strong through the armor because somebody hates you. I thought I heard God loves me. He does. But tonight you're hearing that somebody hates you. (laughs) So you need God's armor. Now, we have been in a series called Identity through Ephesians. We're basically looking at who we are, as the Bible tells it. Uh, This is message number 16. So we've had 15 about who we are. And now it's time to turn this table a little bit. It's time to understand who the enemy is. Because that is the best way in a battle to stand up. So this is where we're going tonight. We're going to do two basic parts. First, we're going we're gonna to understand our enemy. And then we're going to learn how to stand against him. Once we understand him, then we can withstand him. Make sense? So understanding our enemy. Why the heck do we need to understand our enemy? It's not enough just to know who you are. It's not enough just to know who he is. We have to know who both of us are. Now, there is a book called, JC and I have read it. It's actually interesting if you're interested. It's called The Art of War. It's by an ancient, ancient, ancient Japanese general named, uh, I, I don't honestly have no clue how to say his name. It's Sun Tzu, I think. Sun, like the sun, T-Z-U. He's the guy who wrote it. And he basic. and by the way, military still uses book. That's how brilliant it is. It lays the basic tactics of warfare and what to look for and how to understand warfare. And he says this about you and your enemy, that you have to understand them both. So coming from that book, The Art of War, he says this. If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not to fear the result of a hundred battles. You know them both, you don't even have to worry about your battles. But, if you know yourself, but not the enemy, then for every victory you gain, you will also lose a victory. You will also suffer defeat. And then, if you know neither your enemy nor yourself, then you will lose in every battle. See the degree? If you don't know yourself, you don't know the enemy, good luck. If you know... Yourself, but not your enemy, well, you know, you're going to win some and lose some. But if you understand both, you're going to withstand in every single battle. So we've learned a lot about ourselves. But we also need to learn a little bit about the enemy so that we can know where he's coming from as he comes against us. So understanding our enemy. So, who is he? He is, verse 11 tells us, under this title, the devil. Devil means accuser, slanderer. He is this, um, I know guys in our traditional thinking, he's this guy who has a horde of demons and he runs around wreaking havoc on the earth. I don't deny that. I just want you to also see another view here. It's that the ancient Israelites never saw a devil This one guy who ran around wreaking havoc on you. Like, oh, there's Jacob. Get him. Um, The Jews called him the Satan. They didn't call him Satan as a person. They called him the Satan. It was a generic force that was working against God. 
So if there was something working against God, Babylon was the Satan. Pharaoh was the Satan. There wasn't a guy. It was a thing that was in opposition to God's purposes. So, whether Paul is talking about the Satan, this force opposing God, or a person who's trying to wreak havoc upon the church, I don't know. But there is this this thing here that he's calling the devil, and it's coming against God's people. And in Ephesians, what this looks like is death, it's division, and it's darkness. And we've seen those themes through Ephesians. We've seen, right, that the Jew and Gentile are at odds with one another. That you and I were dead in our sins and trespasses. That there are works of darkness that people are doing because they want to feel alive. Those are part of the devil. That's some of the things he's bringing into the world. Now, he wants us to understand that the devil is an unseen enemy. You look at verse 12, he makes this very clear. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but rather against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. It goes on with all these, whoa, we don't use those words today. What is that? His point is, is that the devil is not something you come to like flesh and blood. Like me and Nick can arm wrestle. I can touch him. I can see him. I can see the competition. But the devil doesn't come to us that way. He's an unseen force. He's an unseen enemy. He's working behind the scenes. And that's key for us to understand that we are not going to come against um, somebody who is the devil. A person who's the enemy. And I think that this verse needs to be taken very seriously. That we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against a president. We're not fighting against politicians. We're not fighting against lifestyles or against Planned Parenthood. Israel in their day, or when Jesus was... In Jesus' day, Israel saw Rome as the enemy. And Jesus was constantly telling them through parables and all sorts of ways of communicating, saying, Listen, Israel, Rome is not the enemy. I have come to include all people. The true enemy is the forces that work behind Rome. The true enemy is the forces that work behind the president, behind these systems that we call, quote, evil. Obama is not the problem. It's that there are forces working behind men of power that allow them to work their magic. (laughs) So don't get it wrong. We are not coming against people. And I think this is important too because we can sometimes see guys and girls that say things against each other in schools and in youth groups and wherever at churches and we begin to hate other people because uh, they slandered me that's so not true that what they're saying about me that they're gossiping and, and we make the battle against each other when we need to realize is that there are forces that work behind our motives and actions and that's the true enemy it's not flesh and blood it's not to punch out what she said what he did it's to understand That there are forces that are manipulating us. And we need to stand and not let them happen. So our enemy, who is he? He's the devil. He's this force of death, division, and he's unseen. Now what's his status? His status, according to Ephesians, is that he's defeated. Yeah. He's this wimpy little guy 
who runs around making us think that the world's ending <laughs> and he's actually defeated. In fact, there's a passage in Isaiah that talks about um, the kings of the earth will see the... It talks about Lucifer, this guy, this shining star that's like fallen, and like they will all say, that was him? That was him? Anyways, I, <laughs> he's, he's defeated. Ephesians puts it like this. Um, the death that the devil brings in chapter 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, look what Ephesians 2.5 says. Even when you were dead, you were made alive together with Christ. Resurrection is defeating death. Yes. How about darkness? Satan has all these works of darkness. You see them in 5 verse 3. There's sexual immorality. There's covetousness. Um, in 4.31, there's bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. All these bad things, malice. And then in 5.8, we see that at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Light is beginning to overcome darkness. There are things that are happening in the church that are defeating the devil. How about division? You saw that in chapter 2, the Greeks and the Gentiles were divided and they were angry. They were just not getting along over these systems and identities. And, and Jesus, Paul says, in him and on the cross, he unified all people. That this division is ending. That there's a unification. Uh, in 1 verse 10, heaven and earth severed, divided. But in Jesus, they're coming and touching together once again. So, Ephesians announces that the devil is defeated. And you can go to other passages, which I'm not going to go to. I'm staying in Ephesians. But, for example, Colossians 2 says that when Jesus was on the cross, he disarmed Satan and all his little minions. That there's no more power. They've been defeated. And this is the image that you should think of. When Jesus was on the cross, Satan unleashed his largest army. He fired the thickest storm of arrows that he had. He shot the biggest guns he could shoot. And they all pierced Jesus. They all hit their target and they killed him on the cross. And when all this rainstorm of violence and warfare and Satan's best weapon came against him, when all that was said and done and the dust settled... Jesus was found standing in resurrection. Satan's best shot could not take him down. That is to say, you did your best, didn't even harm me. In fact, you resurrected me. Well, he didn't do it, but I was resurrected. I am now one up. Boom, you're done. You're toast. And Satan is literally on the run. This battle that we're in is not a warfare to find out who wins. It's a warfare to clean up the mess. We're mopping up what Joshua has completed. Remember when Joshua took Israel into the promised land and they defeated the enemies? That's Jesus. And now we're coming in after Jesus and we're mopping up the mess. We have an enemy on the run and he's just trying to wreak havoc until his time is done. So... We are not fighting for victory. We're fighting through victory. We're fighting from a victory. And I think that, to put a little insert here about our identity, um, I think that what we see here is that in Jesus, we stand in an identity of victory. 
In Jesus, you are victorious. And this battle is not who's going to win. It's a matter of standing firm. Notice Paul never says, advance, fight, seek to defeat the devil this way. All he says, here's this armor, stand. The victory is there. We're guarding our inheritance that Jesus, our Joshua, has won for us. So that's, that's the devil. He's, he's unseen. He's defeated. And finally, about the devil, what does he do? What does our enemy do? What are his tactics? What does a defeated, crushed head serpent do on the run? In retreat. How does he wreak havoc? He knows that he can't overpower us. In Christ, we stand in an identity of victory. So then what does he do? He tries to get us to self-destruct each other. Self-destroy each other. Basically through two methods. First, how do you get the church to self-destruct? Deceit. Second, division. We're standing firm in victory. And the devil wants to lure us off of our high ground and into his snares and traps. That's one way he can do it. If we defeat ourselves by being lured. Now you see that in verse... Oops, where am I? (laughs) That in verse 11 it says that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Some of you guys might remember the King James Version says the wiles of the devil. You ever heard that translation? Stand against the wiles of the devil. And you're like, what What does that mean? (laughs) I actually like that translation, not only because it sticks in your head, but wiles reminds me, and actually this is the idea of the word, it reminds me of Wiley Coyote. Coyote and Roadrunner. And this is the idea, is that you have the church-like Roadrunner. Okay, Coyote can never outrun Roadrunner. That is not his game. It's not, get up, and they run, and it's a contest of who's the fastest, and sometimes Coyote wins, and sometimes Roadrunner wins. That's not how the show goes. The show's about a Coyote who knows he's pathetic, who knows he can never win, and who's trying every desperate trick in the book to trap the Roadrunner, because he can't overpower him. So he's wily. What wily means is it's a strategy to manipulate your opponent into what you want them to do. That's what Coyote's trying to do. He's trying to manipulate Roadrunner into his hands. So he does things like puts dynamite in a piano and has Roadrunner come and play it. And when you hit the wrong key, it blows up. And Roadrunner comes and plays it and nothing happens. And then Coyote goes over and says, this was supposed to work when you press this key. You know, he always defeats himself. Um, guys, haven't you seen any of these? Come on. <laughs> Builds an airplane to shoot him down, and then the airplane crashes over and over and over and over. And that, that is a humorous illustration of what's going on in the church. We have an enemy who's defeated. We have an enemy who can't overpower us. But he's trying to deceive us. He's wily. He's trying to lure us and to trap us. And Paul would just say, stand firm in Christ. Stay there. You've got a good inheritance. Second way he tries to make us self-destruct ourselves, not only through deceit, but through division. And I kind of said this a little bit when we talked about the unseen enemy. It's what he'll try to do is make you think you're seeing the enemy in your brother or sister or neighbor. 
He made me angry. I don't talk to him anymore. I am abused by them. I feel slandered. I feel hated. I feel neglected. And this whole emphasis on how other people are making us feel. And therefore, he wants to get the church to look at each other and say, Rawr! And start shooting in civil war. But we don't fight against flesh and blood. So we don't turn the gun on each other. We have to realize what the enemy is doing through us. He's trying to get us to see the enemy in flesh and blood when it doesn't exist in flesh and blood. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't shoot each other. Yeah, they might have made you angry. But realize that there is a real evil at work in the world. And it was working through that person. It didn't, it's not that Nick is the devil. Although JC does call him Nictifer. <laughs> but it's that the devil took advantage of what Nick did and made you think that's the enemy. If I can just teach Nick a lesson, we'll all be good. I'm the hero of the youth group. So. <laughs> so now that you understand the enemy, how do we withstand the enemy? How do we stand firm? There's. First of all, just to repeat. It's so key that we understand that Jesus is our Joshua. He is the warrior. He is drawing the sword. He is fighting. We are standing firm. We're not fighting. We're not called to violence. We're not called to some action. We're called to stand firm and guard. Stand firm and defend. So as Jesus is our Joshua, he is demonstrating the best military leader ever. How did he defeat our enemy? It wasn't by coming down and punching Satan in the face. Although that would have been cool. He, that would have just simply been what all the Caesars of the earth do. All the tyrants and all the kings. That's, that's how they deal with enemies. <laughs> Jesus came down to show a different sort of kingdom. And he came down and suffered at the hands of the devil. And at the hands of men. But in doing so, Jesus conquered the kingdoms of this earth and the devil without drawing his sword without one act of violence and efficiently over three days from death to resurrection this is what the art of war says the best military leaders do how they handle war and just listen to how this describes Jesus he says that the skillful leader subdues the enemy's troops without any fighting so, the devil and his plans for the world have been subdued, and did Jesus and his church ever fight? Now they fought against Jesus. They're fighting against his church through martyrs and bloodshed. Also, the skillful leader captures their cities without laying siege to them. And he overthrows their kingdom without lengthy operations in the field. It was done. In one act. And that's our skillful leader. So understand, church, we're not called to some military action. We are finding ourselves in a battle. And we're called to take up the armor that's going to save us through it. He's the Joshua. He's done the fighting. 
we are doing the standing. So as long as we're in Him, we stand in an identity of victory. And what we are concerned with tonight is how do I then stand? As we stand in an identity of victory, how do I stand when the enemy is coming, when the fight is happening? How do I stand firm and not fall? Well, there's three ways that we stand firm in this identity of victory. First, prepare for attacks. Prepare for attacks that threaten to divide us. The first step we can take is to acknowledge that whatever spiritual warfare looks like, if it's lost keys or if it's a man with a pitchfork, whatever it looks like, it's there. So prepare for attacks. You don't necessarily know how it's going to come, but just be ready that something's happening. So that when people come against you or your friends are saying stupid things, you don't punch them, you realize it's happening behind the scenes. You're ready for that. And you begin to realize that the Christian life isn't about, yeah, let's go conquer our school. Let's go conquer our workplace. The Christian life is about standing up in a position of victory side by side with one another. And so as we prepare for attack, we, we let go of our offensive mindset. Go kill Planned Parenthood because they support abortion. Get rid of Obama because of all, you know. It, it's not church militant anymore. It's not drawing the sword. It's doing more what Jesus did. It's, it's the suffering cross. So just prepare for attack. And it puts us now on the defense. Realizing we've already won. We're just safeguarding what the devil's trying to salvage. Sabotage. So prepare for attack. Number two. Pray persistently for each other's perseverance. Pray persistently for each other's perseverance. This comes from verse 18, so let's refresh ourselves here. Verse 18, he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me as I preach the gospel. So Paul's saying, pray for me. Pray for each other. This is how you keep watch in warfare. Prepare for attack. And so in doing so, pray for one another. That is, that is being alert. That is being watchful. That's being the watchman on the walls, seeing the enemy's coming. And we're praying for each other's perseverance so that in the battle, no one throws in the towel and says, whatever, so much for cotton candy fluff. That's not what happened here. This is too hard. I don't like this Christian thing. I don't like that Jesus calls us to die, that he calls us to serve one another. Brandon, your message about marriage last week just sounded way too like uh i'd rather be king and have everybody serve me fine but we're to pray for each other so that that does not become the mentality so that we persevere in the battle so that we are always standing in that position of victory because of Jesus' sacrifice and what also happens is that as we start praying for each other we will stop slaying each other As we start praying for each other, we realize, wait a minute, we are on the same team. Kimberly is not the enemy. So that's why we need to pray for each other's perseverance. It's like, yes, together we stand. Yes, together we are holding down the fort. And so that together we are realizing we're all on the same team. And that I don't need to get mad at you by the way I think this is so crucial because 
when the Roman legions would go out, they were considered in their time invincible. That's why Rome conquered the earth. They had the best army, the best technology. They were suited from the head to the toe in armor. They had the best weapons, and they had great tactics. Their soldiers were trained. And so as they go out, as long as, catch this, as long as the soldiers stayed in rank and fought on good ground, they were considered unstoppable. The only way to beat a Roman military was to get them to retreat or to deceive them, to get them on bad ground like rocky ground or make them fight uphill. That was the only way you had a chance against the Roman army. And this is what Paul is saying by describing Roman armor on the church. Stand together. Don't be divided. Don't fight against flesh and blood. And we will be unstoppable. You will never fall. So pray for each other's perseverance. Uh, And then number three. The third way we stand in our victory. Put on. This is obviously the main point. Put on the armor of God. That's, That's Paul's biggest point. Put on the armor of God. Look at verse 13. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That's, that's in short saying, take up the armor so you can stand and when everything else is said and done, when the dust settles, you're still standing because the armor is on. Because we're standing side by side. We're an invincible force. Now what is this armor? Notice how he says, put it on, take it up, wear it. Um... Often, we find identity in what we put on, right? Um, When JC comes, and all his little minions that are sitting there with him, as they come to work in the, except for Stephen, when they come to work in the dining room, they put on the black polo and black pants and black shoes and tuck in the shirt and wear the black apron. It is a black op force. (laughs) And when Jaden puts on that black uni, he is identifying himself as part of the black ops force in the dining room. It's part of what, it's what he's becoming. Um, when you go to a sports game, you often identify, some of us don't, but some of us like to identify ourselves with our team by wearing the team's merchandise. Put on your angel hat, wear your Dodger shirt, and you're a confused person. You wear all red, you're a very smart person. So, sorry, Jeff. Also, like, put on PJs. What does that say? My purpose here is to relax. You're not going to work, obviously, when you put on your PJs. You don't see me showing up here in my basketball shorts, my slippers, and whatever else. Disheveled hair. Unless it's on purpose. <laughs> um, Anyways, so you guys get the point. Often what you put on identifies yourself. Oh, by the way, when, when I came in today, Tim was working. I know, Jaden, you, know, you guys are working really late because of the turnover. And Tim, uh, I see him running to worship practice, and he has his Calvary Chapel Conference Center shirt on. He was working. And as he's going to worship practice, he's throwing on a collared shirt. Why? Because he now has to switch identity to the worship team, and that's identified by people wearing a nice collared shirt. So Tim is switching from one identity to the other because he's putting on the collared shirt. 
And that's what Paul's calling us to do. Is take up the armor, put it on. You are now identifying yourself in Jesus Christ. And that's a good thing, because in Jesus, we stand in an identity of victory. That is what we are in him. So when you put on that armor, you're putting on victory. And this is what's going to safeguard the victory. This is what's going to make you stand when the enemy comes and opposes you. The armor is solid, it's tested, it's sure. As long as we have it, we're identified by it, we'll be good. So, when we put it on, we're identifying ourselves as Christ's. And what does that look like? To be identified as Christ's. It looks like truth. It looks like righteousness and justice. It looks like faith. It looks like peace. It looks like salvation. And it looks like the word of God. Those are the six pieces of the armor that Paul gives us. And that's what it looks like to put it on and identify yourself in Christ. To stand in victory. So we'll take all those in turn. Truth. You take on the quality of truth. Obviously, Jesus isn't true because there's a church. There's a church because Jesus is true, right? I mean, maybe you didn't think of it that way, but that's the way it is. We don't affirm his existence. Because he exists, we are here. Now, I know it works both ways at times, but the point is is that we are suspended by and we're held together by truth. I would never spend as much work and sweat as I do in my job if what I did wasn't true. If I did not believe in the truth of the gospel, why in the world would I hang out with you guys? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would never know you, though. So, Why in the world would I read book after book after book after book about how to read the Bible? Why in the world would JC and I plan and plan and plan about different things and have meetings with pastors? Why would we do all this if it wasn't true? It'd be stupid. But because it's true, it's cool. <laughs> it's just that truth. It's it's what holds everything together like a belt does. Okay, there's some pants that people wear. If you don't have the belt on, it's not holding together. <laughs> and actually, that was true with the armor. Is that everything was held together by the belt. The sword was there because of the belt. The breastplate was held by the belt. And um, you might know that they kind of had these skirty things and um, when it was time for action you would actually tuck that into the belt so you had more mobility the belt was very essential and truth is what holds us together guys oh dear I don't know what's going on I could no okay if you guys never mind I just uh, I just wish uh, having a youth call moment one of the teachers talked about the belt of truth in a very awkward way it included, never mind. I will stop. Okay. The second part is righteousness, justice. And um, the reason I'm saying righteousness, justice is because that's what righteousness is. It's justice. We often think of righteousness as like um, being a goody good. The Bible understanding of righteousness means everything is put right. And that's what a judge does. A judge administrates justice. A judge looks at a bad situation and he makes it right. He makes it the way it should be. And God is our judge. And the fact that he is our judge means that justice will be administered on this earth through him and through us. And so we can be courageous, take everything in the chest through this breastplate of justice because we know who our judge is. 
Okay, I can take slander from people and I have to punch them back in the face because I know that there's a judge who will vindicate me in the end. Jesus was able to, before the, the high priest, take the abuse that the Jews gave him and all he replied, although cryptically, but if you... Look through it in there. This is what he says. He says, there will be a day when I'm the one judging you. So go ahead and do your worst. But there will be a day when the table's turned. And he's able to take it. Because he knew who the judge of the earth was. And guys, God is coming as king once again. And we know who the judge of the earth will be then. He will make all things right. And so we can take it all in the chest. This is our breastplate and say, we're good because in that day we will all be vindicated Eternity will right the wrongs of time, Charles Spurgeon said. Number three, the gospel of peace. This is what it looks like to put on God's armor, is that we are gospel messengers of peace. What this means is we're not people who tread over others. We don't walk over them. We don't abuse them and use them as a ladder to elevate ourselves or crush the skulls of those who make us mad. That's what the world does. But the gospel of peace, he says here in the armor, is that we're to shod our feet with it. So far from treading over people, we're to be messengers of forgiveness. That's what our feet are bringing. Not walking over, but saying, I forgive you for walking over me. I forgive you for slandering my king. That's what our feet bring. It's the message of forgiveness, even against those that don't want it. Fourth, faith. Faith is likened here to a shield, right? The shield of faith. Faith deals with faithfulness. And so to have the shield of faith means that I am faithful to Jesus. My faith in him means that I'm putting my allegiance and trust in his kingship. So he's king, and I'm allied with him. I've committed to his kingdom. That's faith. And that allegiance to this king will be like a shield unto you. Because he's got armies, he's got defense, he's got a justice system that will come to your rescue when the time comes. That's the best shield you can have, is that he is my king. And that will shield you against the fiery darts, Paul says. There will be darts, like arrows coming, like, just act like the world. Act like the old humanity. Go ahead and trample over that person. Go ahead and be stupid. Be a dog. Be an animal. Be a, you know, and all these darts are coming at us. And allegiance to Jesus is what makes you say no to these things. It's because I believe in this kingdom and this king who does things a different sort of way. A way that's going to make this world right. So that's the shield of faith. Five, salvation. It's likened into the helmet. Why? Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent, who other places call the devil, um, God says, listen up, serpent. There's going to come a person who's going to crush your head. Retribution's coming. It's the serpent's head who's going to be crushed. And all those who follow him. Not our head. That's why we have the helmet of salvation. In fact, Romans 16.20 says that we, the church, are the ones who are going to crush Satan's head under our feet when Jesus comes back again. So we have the helmet because we're not the ones that are going to be crushed. We might be suffering now, but the crushing is coming upon Satan and his, those who buy into his system. And then finally, it says the word of God. So... You see that it says in verse 
17, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is a sword. This is the only offensive weapon in this whole system. One sword. Romans usually had bows and arrows. They had spears, long spears, that kill people at 30 yards. Um, And all we have is a little sword. That's really to defend yourself in hand-to-hand combat. I think the idea of the sword here, I know that people like in the sword of the Spirit, it's the Word of God. That means the Bible. This is your sword, Christian. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good thing. I mean, that's, that's right. But here's what is short of that. Is that um, Paul is writing this, and what he's writing is part of the Bible. So obviously the whole Bible wasn't there when he was writing this, because he's writing part of the Bible and he says this. So Paul didn't have in mind the Bible that you know. When he said the word of God. What did he mean then is your sword? The word of God. Think what Paul's talking about is the word of God is the word you've been hearing through all of Ephesians. It's the message that God through Jesus is conquering the foes of the earth. And he's making his church his own people in this new creation. The point I think that Paul wants you to know is you hold the sword. You have the word of God which is the gospel. You have the gospel to remind yourself that it's not your might and power that defeats. But it's the might and power of Jesus Christ that defeats. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't that I was so powerful I'm going to heaven. Or I was so righteous I am forgiven of all my sins. The gospel says that you have a Jesus who is your Joshua who fought on your behalf. And we draw the sword to remind ourselves that the violence, the fighting is not for us. That is to submit to our king whose name is is inscribed on the sword. And to say he is the one who fights. We stand firm and follow And so as we put on those six qualities, we are clothed in the armor of God and we identify ourselves in the stance of victory. So prepare for attack. Pray for each other's perseverance persistently. And put on this armor, these qualities, this identity. And I think that we will stand firm in the evil day. Amen and amen. Father, we ask that you would um, empower us to stand as we follow you. And may we always put the battle in your hands. Help us to resist the temptation to punch things in the face. To let you be the righteous judge and to deal with everything as you say it should be. In your son's name we pray. Amen.